Hello everyone, welcome to Knox Bedtime Stories, the bedtime story podcast for grown-ups. I'm your friend Joey, here with another episode to help you relax, feel safe, and fall asleep. It's 11pm here, I hope you're all staying safe, staying away from social media and the news, and anything that triggers you. On tonight's episode, I have a happy news story from 71 years ago that shows just how long an act of kindness can last. Then, I have a beautiful story called Fairy Fruit that talks about the fairies, the different kinds, and what they eat and don't eat. If you're new to the podcast, welcome to the Knox family. I hope I'm able to bring you calm, comfort, and a good night's sleep for a long time to come. From here on out, nothing exists except you, me, this beautiful fireplace, and the bed, couch, or floor you're laying on. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host Knox Bedtime Stories. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out. I would like to thank our newest Patreon patron, Liz Funk, And thank you to the rest of our patrons for helping keep the podcast going. I don't think people have any idea what these donations mean. I put a ton of hours in and my PC is on the fritz and needs to be rebuilt. I have to buy birthday presents, Christmas presents, and at this point, ramen noodle soup for dinner. We need more Patreon patrons. Ask yourself this question. What is a good night's sleep worth to you? Does the podcast help you relax, feel safe, and fall asleep once a month, once a week, five days a week? If it does, please consider becoming a patron for as little as $2 a month. That's basically the price of a cheap cup of coffee a month. There are various rewards for you, including bonus content. These episodes can take me in excess of 20 hours to put together. I do a lot to make sure these are as comforting as possible for all of you, and this is my only income. So, if you would like to become a patron, please go to knoxbedtimestories.com and click the Join Patreon button or patreon.com forward slash Knox Bedtime Stories. On tonight's good news story, we go back 71 years. 
A police department in Kentucky received a letter from a man thanking them for the random act of kindness 71 years ago. In 1950, a young couple stopped in London, Kentucky for lunch and left with a souvenir from the police. It was a small red card placed under their car's windshield wiper. Seven decades later, the man returned the card that his wife kept with her at all times. She passed away and he wanted the department to know what their small of kindness meant to them. While saddened to learn of the circumstances that prompted this letter we received in the mail, the London Police Department was touched to learn that an act of kindness by one of our officers 71 years ago positively impacted a young couple just starting out and passing through our little town. A spokesperson for the department wrote on Facebook. The letter reads... To London Police Department, back in 1950, my bride and I stopped in your city for lunch, and when we left, this little card was under my wiper. For two 17-year-olds, we didn't have extra money for a parking ticket. My wife carried this card in all her wallets since then, and we often talked about how kind your city is. I have lost her, and I just wanted to send this. Thank you. Police Chief Daryl Kilburn said the department doesn't give out those little cards anymore, but he said small acts of kindness will always be part of London's culture. Without cards, most of our stops, I would say, would probably just be giving someone warnings, Kilburn told WKYT. The London native said the letter made him emotional. A little teary-eyed for sure. I just thought how powerful it was, Kilburn said. He's broken-hearted, but at the same time, I can tell he's been a very blessed man, and I'm sure 71 years ago, they've had a great life together. Okay, now let's get into bed. Say to yourself... My bedroom is a place of peace and relaxation. When I enter this room and crawl into bed at night, today's thoughts naturally begin to soften. My burden lightens and sleep is coming. Let's get to tonight's story, Fairy Fruit. Set to sleep-inducing music in this beautiful fireplace. If you're not already laying down, Please do so in whatever way is comfortable. And let's begin. Fairy Fruit Today, the September West winds have begun the fall house cleaning by sweeping the tops of the pine woods. All the morning, the little brown scales, which nestle close to the base of each pine leaf as it grows, protecting it from the withering force of the midsummer sun, have been soaring and spinning in high glee, curiously lighting up with brown glimmers the solemn sanctuaries beneath. It is the first prophecy of winter under the sheltering boughs, where still lingers the midsummer warmth. 
The chickadees going their forenoon rounds scold about it in a brisk fashion that is in tune with the briskness of the wind itself. In the languor of the south wind, the chickadee has a little lazy song, which he sings often, sleepy, sleepy, a tuneful little ditty that makes you want to stretch out on the brown carpet with a mound of green moss for a pillow and let the resinous odors lull you to sleep. I always feel that the bird himself murmurs it with one eye closed and himself in danger of falling off the perch in slumber. None of that song today. It's chick 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 chickadee chickadee with a snap in it like the crack of a whip. Yet the flock soon passes on and in the dreamy warmth of the grove you know little of the vivid touch in the wind. Only enough of it comes through to set the little brown pine motes to whirling merrily as they fall, vanishing from sight like flitting elves as they touch the brown carpet below. There was another elf-like transformation, an appearing and disappearing in the woods this morning. That was the Pyramis Atalanta that kept vanishing into the trunk of a big pitch pine. This, the Red Admiral, own cousin to the familiar Parameus Cardi, the Painted Lady, is a butterfly whose movements are as snappy as those of the west wind on these house-cleaning days. Rich red, white, and black are the colors on the upper side of its wings, but when these are closed, there is exposed only the underside, which makes the creature so exactly like a rough chip on the pitch pine bark, that when he lights on the trunk, the vanishing is complete. Out of nothing he sprang, a vivid flash of darting red and white flipping before your eyes. Then he darted up to the pine trunk that seemed to open and let him go in. So completely did he transform his bright colors into a bit of brown bark. The more I see of woodland glades and sun-dappled depths and the creatures that inhabit them, the less I'm inclined to smile at the elder races of the world that peopled them with fairies, sprites, and goblins. Why should they not believe in these things? It is hard sometimes for us to forgo all lingering remnants of faith in such inhabitants of field and wood. This morning, on my way to the grove, I seem to meet with more than the usual number of woodchucks, though you would hardly call it meeting, for our paths never crossed. But in three different parts of the big mowing field, a woodchuck bobbed out of nowhere in particular. No doubt he was feeding on the clover of the farmer's aftermath, but I saw no more of that than the cropped herbage after the woodchuck has gone. My first sight each time was when the animal began to roll in a straight line across the field. I say roll for the woodchucks at this time of year are so fat that they do not seem to run, 
while undulate over the grass, as does the deep sea wave over the shallows. I never can help chasing them, though I know well what is about to happen, nor do I expect to catch one, for fat as they are, they move with surprising rapidity. Even if I happen to know where his hole is by the pile of dirt at the door, and rush between him and it, I am no nearer getting my game. I always fancy that the fat shoulders of the woodchuck jiggle with laughter, and his little pig eyes twinkle, for that is just what he expects and is prepared for. He keeps right on in his straight line, then pssst, he vanishes. You don't see him dive or turn or hide, he just goes out of sight. You may poke around in the grass for a long time before you find the secret entrance by which he has returned to his burrow. Sometimes he has two of them. They are dug from within outward, and no telltale trace of dirt is left to mark their location. This has all been carried down with infinite pains, then up and left at the public door where all may see it. The woodchuck is the very mark and origin of the paunchy gnome, which is said to guard the buried treasures, and which bobs out of the earth, frightens Hob from the intended mining, then bobs back into the earth to guard the gold. So you have but to go into the pine grove today, with inquiring eye, and the woodchuck is the very mark and origin of the paunchy gnome. Acquiescent mind in all the beautiful old superstitions that always plead to be taken into the belief will come trooping along to your supreme delectation. Well might the great and good Wordsworth say, he who knew the open wold and the bosky dell, as few of us are privileged to know them, and wrote about them as none of us can. Great God, I'd rather be, a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. So might I standing on the pleasant lay, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn. Have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear from old Triton blow his wreath horn. Have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. Here in the pine grove is the riding school of sliffs innumerable. Those fragile fairies who float in slender grace on the passing breeze. Their launching stands are the flat-topped receptacles of the blooms of the erichthites, herichfolium, and coarse and homely fireweed. All summer, it is stood in the open spaces of the wood, with its tall stalks bearing blossoms that look like green druggists' pestles, with no beauty of petal or sepal to entice, no fragrance to call the wandering bee. Indeed, these surly blooms seem like buds that were too cross to open, now it is different. The green bonds of guardian bracts are reflexed, 
and you may now see that this unattractive flower has held close press within its homely heart companies of sliffs. White and slender and soft, they stand until the right wind comes along. Then they spring fearlessly to his invisible shoulders and are born whither they list. Not mortal things are these thistle-down fairies that are so transparent white that you may look through them as they float by and see the sun. If it pleases them to touch your hand or your cheek as they pass, you may note an ether reality of sensation, which is thought rather than feeling, so light it is. The Epilobium Augustifolium, sometimes called willow herb, is another fireweed as beautiful of bloom as erechthites is homely. Like this, it grows in waste places in the wood, flaunting its long race me of showy pink-purple flowers all summer. Like the erechthites too, when September has tamed its exuberance, it is more beautiful still as the abode of white sliffs, which cling in the whirls to its stem. Yet mark you the difference, the sliffs reared by the dower and the homely fireweed stand erect and prim in close communion, as stately and correct and dignified as sliffs may be. Those born of the flaunting epilobium cling to it in graceful, almost voluptuous abandon, assuming such poses as nymphs might in wooing a satire. Equally beautiful, the first are like prim New England schoolmarms, diaphanously gowned for a Greek play. The second suggests artists' models frolicking in the woodland before being called to pose. Along with these two fireweeds, breeders of sliffs in my pine wood, grows the pokeweed, a villainous name for a wonderfully vigorous and beautiful plant. Just now, its close set, racemes of purple-black berries are ripening. Their color, a vivid contrast with the smooth rich green of its ovate, oblong leaves and the wine color of its stems. It is really a royal plant, and so great is its vigor that its dark berries threaten to burst their skins and scatter their rich crimson lifeblood. If you look closely at the berries, you will see that the fairies have stitched them neatly across the top to prevent this. The marks of the needle show, and the tiny puckering made by drawing the thread very tight. It is so workmanlike a performance that I suspect the leprechauns, who are shoemakers, of having been called in to do it. Called in for the leprechauns, without doubt, have all they can do conveniently making and mending the fairy shoon. No doubt the brownies who are domestic fairies, and who would be keeping watch of the woodland fruits, and at the preserving season, had them attend to this, lest the preserving be a failure. The pokeberries look so rich and luscious, 
that I have tried them, but I cannot say that I like the flavor, which is rich indeed, but peculiar. But then I remember my first olive. They don't taste half so bad as that did, and compared with pickled limes, which schoolgirls eat with avidity, they are nectar and ambrosia in one package. All of the underpine world is spread just now with beautiful berries for which neither we nor the birds seem to have a taste. There are the partridge berries, which by the way, I have never seen a partridge eat, nor have I found them in the crops of partridges, which I have been mean enough to shoot. Yet these are to my mind the most edible of all, although they are insipidly sweet, and their flavor is so finely pleasant that it is not for the coarse palate of most mortals. Their vines carpet the wood in places, and the soft pure red of the berries would catch the eye of a bird or a beast from afar. These stay ripe and sound all winter, and you may see their shining red softly among the evergreen leaves when the bare ground responds, dull and sleepy still, to the resurrection trump of spring. They have not been gobbled whole, therefore the larger animals and birds of the wood do not care for them, but in the spring you will often find them with a tiny bite taken out of one side. This can have been done by no other than the fairy urchins, too young to eat fruit with safety, and forbidden by their mothers. They yet slip out and take a bite before they can be hindered. Equally beautiful and conspicuous, and equally insipid to the human taste, are the great blueberries of the Clintonian Borealis which grows sparingly under the pines hereabouts. These are as large as the end of your finger and a wonderful clear shade of Prussian blue. If you know the leaf of the lady's slipper, the moccasin flower's orchid, which is so common in June under all pines, you might, thinking of the leaf only, call this the fruit of the lady's slipper where, as sometimes happens, but one berry grows on a stem. Yet, if you look further, you will not long labor under the mistake, for you will find many stalks with several berries, whereas the single blossom of the Cypratium acol could leave behind it but one. The fruit of the lady's slipper is at this time of the year a dry brown pod, whence all the little dry seeds have long ago dropped. Indeed, it is only occasionally that you will find the pod left so long. I do not know, but birds eat the beautiful fruit of the Clintonia, though I have never seen them do it, and I fancy it is too insipid to creatures that love wild blackberries, raspberries, and cherries. Yet, as in the case of the partridge berries, I have often seen the fruit with a tiny mouthful taken out of it as it stands on the stalk. This is a bigger mouthful than the marks left in the partridge berries, 
So I know that it is not fairy urchins which have done it. Even if I thought they could climb these tall, slippery stalks. I have a fancy that Queen Mob herself, who as you very well know, is the fairy midwife as well as queen, fitting home in the dusk of morning from mothering service, has stopped for a brief refreshment on the Clintonia stalk. I even have a notion that I can see in the bitten berries the prints of the wee pearls that are her teeth. Every little starry bloom of the Smilacina bifolia, which vies with the Michella in carpeting the pine wood, leave behind it a lovely tiny berry that is like a pinhead currant. These now are in little groups at the top of the withering stalks. Fairy currants I have heard them called, and I think the name a good one, for they are red and juicy like currants and taste not unlike them, though like all these fruits the flavoring is more insipid. They are a lovelier berry before ripening than after, for when young they are a slender sage green through which the red shows more and more in dappling spots as they ripen, making them a most beautiful warm gray. I am quite sure that the fairies make jam of these, stowing it away in wild cherry stone jars, built for them by the stonemason wood mice, who are very busy with the wild cherry stones about this time. They drill a little round hole in each and extract the kernel, then put the stones away in their storehouses for sale to the fairies. I have often found these storehouses with the stones put away in them, but have never been fortunate enough to find the fairy larder with the jam in the jars. I often wonder what the fairies think of the fruit of the nodding trillium, which you will find in the woods now with the others. I fancy they look upon it with wonder and amazement as a miracle of agriculture, just as we, about this time, wonder at the vast pumpkin exhibited at the county fair. It is sometimes almost an inch in diameter, roundish with six angles or flutings on it and a very vivid crimson in color. To the fairies they must seem to grow like coconuts on palm trees, for the trillium's erect stem, bearing its spreading palm-like leaves, only at the top, is a foot or so high. I imagine they gather these as they fall with great glee, and stow them away for winter use in making fairy pumpkin pies. Often in autumn, along woodland paths in the night, I have seen a faint glow where I was about to set my foot. Always I step aside carefully, for I have been told that this soft greenish light comes from glowworms. Yet it is more than likely that sometimes the fairy urchins have been allowed to make jack-o'-lanterns from the smaller of these trillium pumpkins and this faint glow is the fairy candle within these. After stepping aside, you should bend your head and listen. 
If you hear faint tinkling laughter, inexpressibly sweet and fine, it is the urchins out with their jack-o'-lanterns, and laughing in glee that they have succeeded in scaring someone. Thank you all for listening, and if you enjoyed Knox Bedtime Stories, please become a Patreon patron. For as little as $2 a month, you can keep Knox Bedtime Stories, helping tens of thousands of people around the world get a good night's sleep, as well as get various rewards such as tears, extra episodes, books, your name on our webpage, and more to come. You can sign up at KnoxBedtimeStories.com and click on the Patreon link or Patreon.com forward slash stories. Become a part of a great community. I wish you all a good night's sleep and a happy peaceful life. May the best of your days be the worst of your tomorrows. Good night.